So when we come to tonight's passage, it actually starts at the end of chapter 6. We kind of went over that a little bit last week. And so does anyone remember the two questions uh, that we talked about from verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6? Yeah, I won't look at you or you guys because you guys. Okay. Okay. How should we live? Probably the simplest way to put it, but what's good? That's the way that the, the text is phrased. Uh, what is the advantage to a man? And uh, verse 10 is along the same lines, verse, the beginning of verse 12. Who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? Okay. What's the other question? At the end of verse 12. What comes after? And that's a question that we will seek to answer. I think Solomon answers those two questions in the next section. So verses 1 through 12 address the question of verse 11 of chapter 6. What's the advantage? What's good for us to live? I think Solomon's answer in chapter 7 is going to be, it's good for us to live wisely. So, uh, chapter 7, it starts... Uh, with seemingly a discouraging picture. Uh, when it says the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. In what sense would that be true? Yeah. Okay, sure. But even just generally speaking, what wisdom or what advantage is gained from the day of someone's death as contrasted to the day of someone's birth? Okay. What about if you are at a funeral, you go to a visitation, what sort of thoughts go through your mind? Okay. So thoughts about the person, for sure. Uh, perhaps there's the question, if it was someone that you knew well, should I have done this more? Should I have done this less? Should I have done this differently in connection with that person? What about with regards to your own life? Yes. Okay. We think about the fact that life is short. Okay. Good. What else? What other thoughts do we think? Okay, am I ready? Yeah. Um, the fellow that um, some of you met when I was first interviewing to come to the church, Jesse, he actually died this last week. And so the, uh, the viewing was this afternoon. And just talking with his daughter, she said, I knew that he went out and had this ministry to people. I didn't realize how much of a ministry he had to people in, until he was in the hospital himself for three or four weeks. And all these people are coming and visiting saying, he encouraged me then, I'm coming and encouraging him now. And that makes you pause and think, if I'm sick and in the hospital, if I am toward the end of my life, presumably from old age, 
what sort of relationship do I have with people? What ministry have I had to people? Not just out of a pride sort of thing, but just out of a, a genuine Christian love and connection with those people that there would be that sort of connection with them and, and love and affection shown in those ways. So a good name is better than a good ointment. Um, there were various ointments that they would have used. Some of them would have been expensive. I think it's basically saying a good name is more important than things that you can buy or sell. Because a good name is something that must be earned. It's not like something that you can go and if you're doing some sort of project and you need a particular tool, you can go to Harbor Freight and buy the one for three bucks. You go to Home Depot and kind of start and go on up the, the line as far as how much it costs there's an extent to which you can buy a better tool. You can't buy a good name. It has to be earned. And the point at which it is assessed, does this person have a good name? Do they not have a good name? I think that really comes out at the point of someone's death. So verse 2. Why is it better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting? You would say, well, feasting is obviously better, right? But what profit toward the goal of wisdom do we get from going to a house of mourning instead of a house of feasting? What's your focus when you're feasting? You're enjoying yourself, right? What's your focus when you're at a time of mourning? You're turned out toward others, or if you're turned inward, it's in a generally a reflective way. Okay? says, and the living takes it to heart. So this is what happened to this person. This is what happens to everyone. Am I ready? What sort of reputation have I cultivated? All those sorts of things. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. This one is a little more puzzling. What do you think it means? Okay. Okay, good. What else? Other thoughts? Think about the book of Philippians. Without reading back what Paul's saying there, I do think there are some parallels. Was Paul going through situations and circumstances that were difficult or caused grief or those sorts of things? Yes. Was he also able to find joy in God? I think at the same time also, yes. Um, I think along the same lines as the previous few verses, sorrow is better than laughter because in the context of sorrow there can still be joy. And Solomon has already said earlier in the book, uh, I believe it was in chapter 2, I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Laughter is enjoyable for a time, but it's not an end in itself. It's not a goal to live for. It doesn't bring a long-term satisfaction, but a wise way of life connected with the reflection that opportunities of sorrow brings, that can produce more wisdom than a time of laughter. Again, not saying laughter is bad, not saying it doesn't have its place, not saying it, it should be avoided, but Solomon's saying, which one is more likely to promote wisdom among us? 
And then verse 4. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. The mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Again, same sort of contrast. He's saying kind of the same idea in several different ways. The person who's wise takes to heart what's happening in the house of mourning. The person who's in a place where there's feasting and laughing and enjoyment, that's not really their focus. Now, it is possible for us to swing to one extreme or the other, right? Everything is terrible, nothing is good, and I only focus on what is sorrowful and discouraging, all those things to the point that I'm just overwhelmed by it. I don't think that that's Solomon's point. He's just saying, which one has more advantage for cultivating wisdom? When you are come face to face with certain basic realities, life, death, a good name, the shortness of life, all of those sorts of things, those things help you to live more wisely. Which leads us to the series of contrasts that he has in verses 5 through 12. Verse 5. Why is it better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of fools? Okay. Good. Up. Uh, yeah. Do you ever go to the mall or you're waiting on hold? Some of the things that they play over the the broadcast system or on the phone or are just you're like, who decided that this particular series of phrases was a good idea to string together? It's just kind of pointless. Could it be fun, perhaps, for a time to have that sort of song just sort of take your mind off something? Maybe. Is it always wrong in and of itself? Probably not. But it's certainly not a, a situation that's going to promote a whole lot of thinking about life and moving toward wisdom and all those sorts of things. I like the, the word picture we have in, in verse 6, as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot. Apparently in the Hebrew, there's a lot of S sounds in this. So it's like this that you get with something sizzling and crackling under a fire. Um, but even in this, you have this word crackle. We call that onomatopoeia, which is a really long word that just means sounds like the action or the activity, right? So when something crackles, that's the noise that you get when something's burning and, and flaring up in a fire pit. Or it's um, the noise you get when you step on a stick. Here's the interesting thing. Do the thorn bushes burning under a pot achieve heat and light and warmth for a time? Yeah, for a short time. Yeah, so I think that that's part of Solomon's point. The laughter of fools is profitable, pleasurable, enjoyable for a very brief time. And then it's gone, and then it's not serving its purpose any longer. And so then when he says this too is futility, the laughter of the fool is along those same sorts of lines. It's like when you throw sticks on a fire. They're quickly burned up, and, and it's gone, and, and you're left with ash instead of with something useful. And then verse 7, we have uh, another sort of contrast. Oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So if we're going to live wisely, should we be for or against oppression?
I think the passage is saying that it's not a good thing, obviously, right? And a bribe corrupts the heart. So someone would think that a bribe would be to an advantage, right? But what happens if someone starts accepting bribes? Do they just take one? No. And they become ruled by greed and by selfishness and by continuing to become more and more corrupt. And so it's not profitable for them to even go down that road. And again, like, the, like in much of the wisdom literature, we have this idea of two paths. You go down this way, it leads to destruction and trouble. You go down this way, it leads to life. This is the way of wisdom, to life and to profit and to good. This is the way of trouble, of, of foolishness, to destruction and so forth. Accepting a bribe, pursuing oppression as a means to get what you want, those are the way of foolishness. And Solomon is saying, don't go down that way. Verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Why? Okay. You know, you know if you succeeded or not, right? What else? Any other thoughts? Okay. Yeah, it's completed. Good. Is it easy to start well and not to finish something well? Yeah. There's a lot of projects on the shelf of my garage that are in that state. I'm sure we all have those sorts of things, right? We start things and we say, oh, this, I'm going to learn how to do blank. So if you're wise, you say, the last time I said this to myself, I ended up with all this stuff that I don't use now, so I'm going to go try it out somewhere else and then see if I want to pursue it. But maybe you haven't learned that wisdom yet and you made the same mistake again. You're like, so I'm going to go buy all the tools or all the equipment or all the whatever else in order to do this particular thing. And then you get in the middle of it and you say, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And then what happens? You didn't finish it. You have a lot of things you don't need and you're frustrated with the situation. That's the sort of example that I think Solomon is talking about here. It's better when we finish something than when we start it. Because anybody can start something, but to finish it requires a, a measure of diligence and skill and all of those sorts of things. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. So is it better to be humble and patient, or is it better to be proud? Maybe some of the kids can answer this. It would be better to be humble or to be proud, and why? Okay, why? Okay. And what's their response to you then? Do they like you or not really like you? Okay. So if I go up to somebody and I'm always saying how great I am and how amazing I am and how terrible you are and I wish you that you could be as good as me, does anybody want to be around that kind of person? Not too much. But if you come alongside someone and you say, hey, can I help you with that? Or it seems like you need, um, like uh, I explained maybe the rules to a game one time and maybe I need to explain them again instead of saying, I can't believe you don't understand how to do this. You know those sorts of things. Patience and humility versus being proud and being a know-it-all. Obviously, being humble is better. That's the way of wisdom. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom or in the, in the internal parts of fools. 
James says something very similar, right? What does James say about anger? Anybody remember? Okay, slow to anger. Solomon's saying the same thing here. Don't be eager to be angry. Is it possible for us to be in the habit of as soon as something frustrates us, I'm mad about it? How does that usually work? Does that work well or badly? It, it works badly, right? Why? What are some of the bad results of being quick to be angry? Okay. Yeah, you hurt other people by the things you say or do. What else? Yeah, for sure. Or words. What about... Yes. All right. Yeah, so if I'm frustrated about something and I use that as motivation to actually resolve the problem versus going after the person. Because a lot of times we look at the person that's next to us in the situation and we think that they're the problem, so we're mad at them. But what many times is the problem? Us or some sinful choice that we've made. That's the thing that we need to deal with. That's the thing that our energy of anger needs to be directed toward. And then we can move on from it. If you immediately get angry... What sort of person does verse 9 say you are? A fool. Should we want to be fools? No. Solomon's arguing this passage, don't be a fool, be wise. Another evidence of foolishness, verse 10, is one that maybe we're more prone to as we grow older. Why can't we go back to the way things were at this point in time? Were things better then? No, I mean, if you go a hundred years ago, you didn't have indoor plumbing too much. So, I mean, clearly that's better. Now, no, that's not the point of what he's saying, though. He's saying, if we are looking backwards and saying we should go back here, then we are both ignoring the advantages of the present time and the disadvantages of the past time. So I read a, you know, a tongue-in-cheek article on Babylon B. I won't, I won't plague you with more than one of them. But essentially what it said was, this guy lamented the fact that 50 years ago, everyone was at least outwardly willing to act like a Christian. So it's being a little bit sarcastic. There was a sense in which perhaps there were people in which Christianity was more part of the fabric of our society at that point. But the fact of the matter is, there was also a great deal of instances in which there were people who didn't really love God, or didn't really follow God, but just tried to live good moral lives. You would see this a lot, and again, no discredit to those who have served our country in the military, but I, I've seen this more times than I would care to count at funerals of people who served in the military where there was a preacher who was not doing justice to what the Bible says and he essentially said, you know what, this guy was a good soldier so he's going to heaven. That's not how we get to heaven. We don't get to heaven because we're a good neighbor. We don't get to heaven because we're a good soldier and try to help out our fellow soldiers. We don't get to heaven because we gave a lot of money to help people in need. 
Is it possible that if we are on our way to heaven and we do know Christ, then some of those actions theoretically should flow out of it? Yes, but those things are not the basis of us going to heaven. And so, when we see here and say, the former days were better than now, again, it's easy for us to look with fondness on what's past and to look with fear towards what's coming. And we have to recognize, I think a good parallel of this is the book of Corinthians, the two books that Paul wrote, the Corinthians. Why is that a good parallel? Sometimes people say, I can't believe how bad our society is today. You read what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, what sort of things were going on? People were married to people they should not have been married to. They were worshiping idols openly and flagrantly and in a way that mocked God. They were fighting and angry toward one another, etc., etc., etc. And these were all among professing Christians. So if that's among professing Christians, imagine what the world around them was like. Are there differences between then and now? Yes. But when we say, oh, we're in a terrible spot, we're just sort of going to hang on until Jesus comes back, I think we ignore both the testimony of history and the hope of transformation through the gospel and the fact that God is at work now just like He was then. So it's not a question of moving backwards. It's a question of saying, let's learn from the good and the bad of then. Let's look at the good and bad of now and say, how can we live wisely in the present time? The next two verses are, are closely connected. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, money is protection. The advantage of knowledge is wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Why does he compare wisdom and money? They have value. What do they do for us? Verse 12. They protect us. How does money protect us? Okay. I'm not sure that that's specifically what Solomon had in mind. Okay. We could... Oh, by a sword, right. How is money a protection? Right. It provides options of when we come to a point of need or a point of potentially we, let, we need safety. There's, there's things that we can do with money to protect us. Uh, to make sure that our needs are met down the, down the road. So when he says wisdom with an inheritance is good, the inheritance, he's probably saying literally, if you get money as part of that inheritance, that's good, that's to your advantage. Wisdom is also protection. How is wisdom protection? Think about the book of Proverbs. Think about the contrast between the person who is naive and the person who's wise. How does the person who is naive lives? live? carelessly, foolishly. Probably the classic verse that comes to mind, the prudent sees the evil ahead of him and hides himself, moves away from it. The simple, the naive, the foolish, they pass on and they're caught in it, they're punished, they get into difficulty. This is applied to a bunch of different things in the book of Proverbs, but wisdom protects us from dangers that lie ahead. Is wisdom or money more helpful in protecting us? Wisdom. Look at the end of verse 12. Wisdom preserves the lives of its possessor. Now, theoretically, I suppose someone could make a kind of argument that says, if you have enough money, then you can buy protection and no one can attack you. 
that's not really the point of what he's saying. He's saying, if you live wisely, you're far less likely to die than if you live foolishly. Right. And you accelerate your, your demise, your destruction, right? How should we live? Solomon says, live wisely. So the answer to verse 11 of chapter 6, what's the advantage? What's the best way to live? Live wisely. Does wisdom secure for us a guaranteed outcome in this life? No. Look back to chapter 2 and verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Wisdom can't preserve you ultimately from death. That's what he talks about at the beginning of chapter 7. But it can make sure that the life you live is a lot less miserable, a lot less difficult, a lot more pleasing to God than if you live a life of foolishness. How about the second question? What comes after? We didn't read it in our scripture reading. It's found in verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything after him. So when he says in verse 13, Consider the work of God, who is able to straighten what he has bent. Have we heard something like that before? In the book of Ecclesiastes. The answer is yes. I didn't write down the, uh, the verse, so I'm trying to find it myself too. So if you see it, there. is it 115? I thought it was in chapter 1, but I think I skipped over it. Yes, what's crooked cannot be straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. There are puzzles and difficulties and questions in life that we cannot solve. So when he says something that God has bent, God has set up the world in such a way that we can't fully explain it. Um... So, I think I've talked about this before. We talk about what holds up the universe. So there's the pagan concept, right? One of the pagan concepts was that the world rides on the back of a giant turtle. So the joke is, somebody asked a lady, so what's underneath the turtle? And she says it's turtles all the way down. That's one explanation. It doesn't really get at the answer to the question though, right? Because, you know, there's the, other, there's the argument that people make for the existence of God. Well, everything that happens has a cause. So everything, you reason backwards, there must have been a first cause. What's the problem with that argument? Who caused the first cause? At some point, we have to say, I can't answer all of these questions. I can't explain all of these things. I have to accept by faith that is not irrational but that cannot explain every detail of how the world functions and works. Because if I could, then I would be the creator who actually did make it and understands all of it. This is sort of the conversation God had with Job at the end of the book, right? All right, Job. Explain to me how the constellations work. 
and about Leviathan and about all of these other things that you observe that you know all about. Explain to me how all of these details fit together. Job had to say, I can't, I'm not God. That's the answer that we come to. So verse 13, consider the work of God. Can you explain it all? No. Is it bad to try to understand it better? No. As long as with humility we recognize we can't explain all of it. Okay? Verse 14. If we don't, if we can't understand everything, what should we do at the beginning of verse 14? In the day of prosperity, be happy. God blesses you. Enjoy it. He starts out chapter 7 by saying, death is coming, we should reflect soberly on those things. Does that mean that has to be the only thing that we ever think about? No, there are good things in life, we ought to enjoy them. But what's the good things that he said we should enjoy in life? Our work? What else? What's that? God, ultimately. But temporal things that God has given us as gifts. Work. Family. Food. I was hesitant to bring that one up because people start thinking about supper. <laughs> We're supposed to enjoy these temporal pleasures that God has given them in the context of they're for a little while, they're from God. And as we continue down in verse 14, in the day of adversity consider, God has made one as well as the other. So if God gives you, from a human perspective, good times and God gives you, from a human perspective, bad times, what's the common thing between both of those? God gave it. And think about what Job said. God gave it. God can take it away. Blessed be God's name. That is an extraordinarily difficult thing to say. But it's true. Verse 14 ends, so that man will not discover anything after him. I thought we were going to get the answer to our question, Solomon. How do I know the future? Solomon says you don't trust God. Enjoy the blessings He gives you. See, the trials is also from His hand. Rest in Him because you can't rest in yourself because you can't know the future. So how do you live? Live wisely. Don't live foolishly. How do you approach a life in the context of which you don't know what's going to happen next? Recognize that God knows it when you don't. We don't like that. We want to know what happens next. We want to be able to open the book, turn to the last page and say, and it ended and they lived happily ever after. And to a certain extent, we see that at the end of the, of the Bible, right? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more sickness and sorrow and suffering and death. We're not there yet. So until we're there, live wisely, rest in God's power. That's what Solomon calls us to do. And against those who would say that the message of Ecclesiastes contradicts the rest of the Bible, isn't that what the rest of the Bible calls us to? Live wisely, trust God. Or, as we put it in the song that we sometimes sing, trust and obey. That's what God calls us to do. Let's pray. Lord, the answers to the questions that we see here are not necessarily easy. It's perhaps more enjoyable to oppress someone than to serve them. 
perhaps more pleasurable to give vent to our anger than to rule it rightly through your power. More satisfying at times to complain than to recognize that you are at work in all eras of history. Lord, help us to live wisely in contradiction to the foolish path that we see also set out in verses 1 through 12. Lord, we want to know the future. We want to know what's happening next. We want to uh, just sort of, uh, and we do this, and then we do this, and then we do this. But that's not what you've given to us. But you have said, I'm good. Trust me. Do what I've said for you to do. Sometimes that is things that we are happy about. Sometimes that is things that we are sorrowful about. May the things that are happy remind us of the blessings from you and that we praise you for them. May the things that are sorrowful help us to examine our lives and to say, that's where I will be someday, or this too is from your hand. And in the same way, live wisely, recognizing that all that we do is under your sight and in your overall plan that you are working out, not only in our lives, but in all of human history throughout the world. And so, Lord, these things do not take you by surprise. They do not overwhelm you, but you are working in our lives in all circumstances of life. Help us to trust you. Help us to live wisely and obey you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.